Hi, and welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, we bring you our first podcast on the history of the modern community broadband movement. We talked to Jim Baller, president and senior principal of the Baller Herbs Law Group, the preeminent organization for communications law and policy. Jim has been working with communities for decades and walks us through some of the pivotal moments in telecom law. Here are Chris and Jim taking us back. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Today we have a real treat. We have Jim Baller, the president and senior principal of the Baller Herbst Law Group. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Jim, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show. We've we've waited a while. Uh, I'm not going to say that I was intimidated by your vast knowledge of municipalities on a show in which I try to show off, uh, but that may have been a part of it. Well, Chris, uh, your arrival on the scene a few years ago has been so important, and I think that there's now no one who knows as much about the uh, community broadband world in the details that you do uh, anywhere in the country. Well, that's very kind. I I, I appreciate that. Um, today we're going to be uh, talking about um, the the many years before I was involved. Um, and so uh, perhaps you can start for the three people in our audience who aren't aware of your work by uh, describing how you're involved with uh, community-owned networks. Well, uh, our firm has uh, been involved in, in this uh, area for many years, and perhaps later we'll get into how that came about. But uh, currently, uh, we represent uh, communities, uh, public power uh, utilities, uh, private entities uh, on projects uh, across the country uh, that have the common feature of um, attempting to uh, get as much uh, capacity to as many uh, members of the community as possible. We've been involved in uh, more than 50 fiber projects, inclu- including most of the leading ones. We've also been involved in the uh, uh, battles across the country and uh, before the federal government and in the courts on the right of uh, communities to make their own choices about their uh, broadband futures and economic development and educational opportunity. And um, uh, doing that sort of thing on a day-by-day basis makes me feel like the uh, most fortunate attorney in the country. I think we should also note the excellent work of uh, Casey Lyde, uh, Sean Stokes, and uh, sort of the mystery man. Um, I know he's up here in uh, the Minneapolis uh, Twin Cities area, but your partner, Adrian. Yes, uh, I think uh, we've got a, a marvelous team. Uh, Casey and Sean uh, work uh, with me and uh, on projects of their own in the uh, entrepreneurial side of uh, local government and uh uh, projects of this kind, and uh, Adrian's background primarily is in the uh, uh, regulatory side of local government. He was one of the uh, pioneers of cable franchising and uh, uh, still does uh, lots of work in that area and in right-of-way management, tower siting, and that sort of thing. Great. So let's let's jump back and talk about how you first started working uh, with the community-owned networks. What was the the first city? Well, uh, it wasn't a city that 
that started this off um, back in uh, 1992, after the enactment of the uh, cable amendments that year. Uh, these amendments were intended to encourage competition in the uh, cable industry. I was at the time a um, an energy attorney, and I had a bit of a lull in my business, and I attended a conference with one of my partners. Uh, this conference was given by the American Public Power Association, and uh, the purpose of the conference was to acquaint its members with the um, uh, new uh, communications provisions that had just been enacted. Uh, at the time, I had no idea why a utility would be interested in uh, cable uh, television service, but I soon learned at this conference that uh, mu many uh, municipal utilities and other public power utilities were going to upgrade their uh, infrastructure uh, to um, fiber and other advanced communications uh, technologies. And with that technology, they could support the provision of cable service, phone service, many other kinds of communication services. And so uh, there's a great deal of interest in how they could do that and what the laws meant and so on and so forth. Toward the end of the conference, the uh, director of uh, public communications circulated a sign-up sheet for members of the audience to help pitch in and uh, hire Washington Council to work on the wave of uh, rulemakings that the FCC was going to issue to implement the act. And uh, my partner and I uh, volunteered to do this on a pro bono basis as a uh, form of on-the-job training for me. And uh, during that uh, following year, I worked uh, shoulder to shoulder with uh, Billy Ray and some of the other uh, pioneers and visionaries in the municipal area uh, on these rulemakings, and they turned out to be very favorable to to uh, municipal utilities. And Billy Ray was uh, one of our guests uh, a number of months ago. Uh, we're going to come back and and hear more from him in a in a future episode. Well, that's great because uh, Billy was thinking about. Uh, things that have taken uh, the rest of the universe a uh, quarter of a century to uh, arrive at. He's uh, one of the uh, very great visionaries in the field, and it was a marvelous experience uh, learning at his um, side during that period of time. I can only imagine. I've, I have gone back and read some of his early writings, and it's you almost wonder if, if someone lied and he had some sort of a time machine or something because he certainly saw things a lot earlier that are now quite obvious when it comes to marrying uh, information uh, technology and uh, the uh, electrical grid. Well, Billy Billy was calling that stuff infotricity right. back in the uh, early to mid-90s. Um, I, I think maybe we should actually start because both you and I um, perhaps take it for granted because we're both very much interested in the history of electrification. But I wonder if in two minutes we could go over um, the rise of the municipal electric utility and, and uh, sort of the evolution over the years just very quickly. Well, I'd be glad to do that. And in fact, one of my um, first assignments uh, with APPA was to write a um, uh, history that compared this period in telecommunications 
with the uh, comparable period in the electric industry, and uh, that was done in 1994, and it's up on our website and uh, available. Um, and that's Ballard.com. Ballard.com. B-A-L-L-E-R.com, linked in the notes. A century ago, beginning in the uh, 1880s, I guess that's more than a century ago, when the country was electrifying the private sector uh, as the private telecommunications sector focused first on its most lucrative markets, and at that time that was primarily uh, cities and uh, the very wealthy, and uh, left most of the country literally in the dark because the first use uh, of electricity on a large scale was uh, in lighting. And so uh, at the time, uh, perceiving that electricity was going to uh, contribute to uh, economic development and educational opportunity and lots of other benefits, something like uh, 3,000 communities ultimately stepped forward and developed electric utilities of their own. And uh, if you go back to that period, uh, you can find uh, opposition mounted by the uh, power companies that are virtually identical to the objections that the uh, communications incumbents uh, often raise in this Uh, field of uh, communications today. uh, In fact, sometimes uh, in in my um, presentations, I quote from uh, chapters of a a two-volume symposium that Moody's Magazine published uh, talking about the advantages that uh, uh, public ownership uh, supposedly provides, how Uh, municipal networks always fail, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is all done in uh, 1906, and the topic that they were talking about was electricity, uh, but the arguments were identical to the arguments uh, that we see today. And then over the years, um, after the peak of uh, the number of uh, systems that uh, Uh, were operated by uh, local governments. Uh, The technologies changed. Uh, New investments were required. Operations went on a regional scale as opposed to a local scale. And uh, about a 1,000 municipalities decided that they had had achieved their mission of not being left behind and obtaining the benefits of uh, their own electric networks and got out of the... um, Uh, business sold their uh, networks to private entities for the most part. And uh, the number stabilized at around uh, 2,000, and we still have about 2,000 public uh, power utilities uh, today uh, providing service that is uh, largely superior and at significantly lower cost than uh, private entities. And if we can look back to this period in communications at the turn of the next century and um, uh, see that uh, our uh, public uh, communications providers made as much of a contribution to the well-being of the country as the municipal electrics did in their their time and today still, uh, we have a lot to be proud of. 
I'm reminded of something uh, Harold DePriest and I talked about. He's the uh, CEO of the Chattanooga's Electric Power Board, uh, where he would say that, you know, when some look back on electrification and the municipalities, they thought of it very narrowly in terms of uh, cities that were um, just investing in electricity because it was so important. And he said he takes a broader view, which is to say the utilities formed to help the cities ensure that they had the advantages of the new technology of the day. And when he thinks about investing in the fiber optic networks, it's along those lines. These aren't so much electric power utilities as they are public utilities that are uh, doing what it need, what they need to do to make sure that uh, the community can attract jobs and uh, have a high quality of life. And so when you when you look back, it's kind of fascinating because like uh, in Lafayette, when they voted to form their electric utility in uh, and water utility in Louisiana, it was a vote of the propertied men. Um, you know, so it was a very different time. But in other ways, it's a very similar time because some themes just come back time and time again. Uh, you mentioned Lafayette. Let me um, let me just say that uh, the, the history is a good example. Uh, Lafayette had uh, a unanimous vote of the the individuals who were the important decision makers back in the uh, 1890s. Uh, they were challenged. They went to the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court, won a unanimous decision that they could go forward, develop their electric network, and were, were very successful as a community, among other things, attracting a branch of the University of uh, uh, Louisiana to Lafayette, uh, that history repeated itself in the uh, uh, in, in in this decade. And uh, again, we had a, a referendum. Uh, this time, uh, the public participated widely. They won a landslide victory. We were challenged three or four times. Uh, ended up getting a unanimous decision by the Louisiana Supreme Court. Again. Uh, supporting the city's right to move forward with its project. And um, uh, what you said earlier about Harold uh, certainly is shared by the uh, leadership of uh, Lafayette and most other uh, communities uh, that have taken the step of forming their own electric utilities or other utilities and communications. Um, and uh, uh, that's because they are the community. They're owned by the community. Uh, the the individuals who work there uh, don't view what they're doing as uh, simply providing a commercial service, but uh, providing something that is important for them and their uh, neighbors. In Lafayette, for example, during that referendum, uh, my wife, who's very politically active in, in the D.C. area, came down for the referendum with me, and she was just astounded uh, to be sitting at uh, the um, uh, campaign headquarters where we had the leadership of both the Republican and the Democratic parties working shoulder to shoulder in a way that they never did on other occasions, and that's because uh, everyone there in 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 that room among the leadership viewed the project as primarily a project to promote uh, educational opportunity economic development 
access to affordable health care, and so on and so forth, all values that are shared by uh, members of a community, regardless of uh, what your political or religious or other uh, preferences might be. And it was in that uh, environment a question of the right framing of what the project was. It wasn't viewed as a, a tool to simply compete with the private sector, but something that the community needed in order to uh, be a, a leader among communities around the world, and uh, they were bound and determined to get it done. Before I interrupted you, you were um, talking about how you had met Billy Ray of Glasgow, Kentucky, and I'm um, curious how uh, what happened next in your uh, traveling along the path of these municipal networks. Well, let's let's go back uh, to what happened in that year that we worked together because that that I believe is an important um, uh, foundational piece to what happened since then. Um, the FCC issued issued several rulemakings to look at a variety of challenges that a new entrant into the cable industry, and it was only cable at the time that we were focusing on. Uh, would would have to meet in order to be able to compete successfully. And uh, Billy was especially of interest to the FCC because he had run into virtually every kind of uh, problem that anyone could have conceived of um, from uh, the uh, local cable company Scripps running its uh, trucks and salespeople a block ahead of Billy offering vast discounts uh, to uh, potential customers, to denying access to programming, to blocking them from uh, accessing uh, multiple dwelling units, and on and on and on. And we would go to the FCC and have sessions with uh, their task forces and explain how all this worked and what it would take for uh, the rules to prevent these practices, and in the end, the rules were written very much in favor of uh, not just uh, public entrance, but entrance of all kinds. They included such things as required access to programming, uh, uniform pricing within uh, a particular franchise area, uh, ban on unfair trade practices, when you say uniform pricing, that means that um, you can't just make a discount for like one block and then charge a different block a, a different amount of money. Is that right? Correct. Uh, in, in 1992, a, a rule was adopted requiring uh, uniform pricing within a franchise area. Um, and so uh, with those rules in place, uh, we saw a... Um, a wave of entrants that lasted several years. Uh, I don't know exactly how many, but um, uh, there must have been at least 75 to 100 communities that formed their own uh, cable systems around the country. And I had the good fortune of being able to work with many of them. And, um, and so that took us to about the mid-90s, when uh, in 1995, the state of Texas adopted a barrier to municipal entry, uh, not to put a fine point on it. They just said that municipal municipalities and municipal electric utilities 
can't provide telecommunication services directly or indirectly, and that's that's what the law said. Uh, we responded to that by uh, working with Congress, which was working on what became the Telecom Act of 1996. That took many years to write. I mean, there was some who, would, who were hoping it would have passed in 94, I think. And right. so, you know, it's, it was passed in 96, but it was something that, that there was hearings on for many years and discussions about. Right. That's correct. And by the way, the paper that I mentioned before comparing these periods was written as a, um, uh, a leave behind by APPA and uh, others as we uh, spoke to uh, Congress during that period of time. And one of the things that we got from Congress was a provision that said that no state or local government will uh, pass any law or regulation that uh, may prohibit or have the effect of prohibiting the ability of any entity to provide any telecommunication, any interstate or intrastate telecommunication service. Uh, that was uh, clearly intended to have the effect of uh, getting at uh, laws like the um, uh, Texas law that I mentioned, and um, uh, we were very pleased when that became a part of the Telecom Act as enacted. Unfortunately, um, in a case that followed uh, shortly afterwards, when the uh, uh, when uh, the uh, Texas law was brought before the FCC uh, under a petition for preemption brought by a private sector provider that wanted to uh, lease dark fiber from the uh, city of San Antonio to compete with Southwestern Bell. And the FCC decided that the term any entity uh, wasn't clear enough uh, that it could mean any private entity, and they ruled against a uh, preemption. That decision went to the uh, D.C. Circuit in a case called uh, Abilene, uh, City of Abilene versus the FCC. Uh, I was uh, lead counsel on that, and we lost. Uh, at the time, the, the, the ruling said this involves only a city that doesn't operate an electric utility, and uh, the, there's a lot of legislative history on uh, electric utilities, but not on cities, and therefore our ruling applies only to cities. Uh, we then went back to the FCC with another petition for preemption, this time involving municipal utilities in Missouri. We lost again before the FCC, uh, but then um, won a court victory uh, on behalf of uh, the city of Bristol, Virginia. The rationale there rejected the FCC's um, interpretation. Um, it was the foundation for a ruling by the Eighth Circuit upholding uh, the, the challenge to the FCC's rules. We ultimately went to the Supreme Court and lost there as well. So um, uh, what was, in our view, intended to be a clear uh, indication by Congress that uh, that uh, state barriers were not um, appropriate turned out to be a loss at the Supreme Court. 
you know, the interesting thing from my point of view is is the, the important role of the FCC here. And so I think you simplified a little bit, but if I can, you can tell me I'm wrong, but the way I see it, when you when the FCC decided in Abilene, it, it changed a lot of things uh, in that the court, when you challenged the FCC's decision, the court basically, the D.C. Circuit Court, is evaluating not just what the correct law reading is, but also it's deferring to the administrative expertise of the FCC. And so, you know, courts have this obligation to defer to expert agencies, except for when the expert agencies are so far outside the realm of where they're supposed to be. And so, you know, as soon as the FCC said no, that the 96 Act was not clear, then it wasn't just a matter of you demonstrating that it was clear. It was also you had the uphill battle of fighting against the inertia of a poor decision from the Federal Communications Commission. And it seems like that set the whole tenor, because then when you had an independent court, this district judge in in Virginia who could sit back and evaluate it without taking into consideration really the um, the FCC's initial erroneous decision, then he came to a different conclusion, which was that it was obvious that, uh, you know, with Trent Lott and so many other people, the things that they said when they were passing the 96 Act, it was very clear that any entity meant to encourage all kinds of competition. Well, uh, you're ordinarily correct, and you're correct in how the district court in uh, the Bristol case uh, read the uh, uh, language. He rejected the um, uh, FCC's interpretation because you're quite correct. He said it was clear and unambiguous from the text itself uh, that the um, uh, term any entity was should be read broadly to cover anything. We, in fact, cited 60 years of Supreme Court precedent stating that if you have the modifier any in an unrestricted and uh, broad form in a statute, you should assume that Congress knew what it was doing in, in uh, using that term and that unless you find something else in the statute or in the uh, regulatory history or the statutory history, legislative history, that requires a different conclusion, you should give Congress the benefit of the doubt and then use whatever word Annie modifies in its broadest sense. That's what we argued. That's what uh, Judge Jones in uh, Bristol agreed with, and that's what the um, uh, the very conservative Eighth Circuit unanimously agreed with. Uh, unfortunately, by the time this went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court had become a very um, uh, strict in its interpretation of uh, of what it saw as a a battle between a state seeking to enforce uh, traditional state power, namely telling its uh, political subdivisions what they can and can't do, and uh, local governments and the federal government preempting a state effort to uh, enforce a traditional state power. And the Supreme Court applied a heightened standard in our case and said that we need an ex- 
explicit statement in the statute on the face of the statute we can't even refer to legislative history that says we intend preemption of this particular uh, traditional state power and finding that any entity might mean any public as well as any private uh, entity the fact that the uh, the the statute in question did not say explicitly that Congress intended to preempt state barriers to uh, public uh, telecommunication services. That was enough for the Supreme Court to rule against us. That's certainly the disappointing decision that has led to uh, 19 states having uh, barriers to community-owned networks. Um, I think when we come back to continue the history in our next show, we will pick up with a more exciting pace and, and, and focus on all the uh, terrific things that local governments have done rather than the depressing things that some of the we've had at the federal level. As Shakespeare says, uh, sweet are the uses of adversity. And in 2004, we had two pieces of adversity. One was the Supreme Court decision in the municipal, the Missouri Municipal League case. The second was the enactment of a truly ugly barrier to entry in Pennsylvania at the end of the year. But those two pieces of adversity together enabled us to piece together a broad coalition of uh, high-tech companies and national associations and public interest groups and uh, many other kinds of um, organizations and entities and individuals that set off a wave of success uh, for municipalities that is, that lasted for uh, the next five years. And uh, I hope that that will stimulate interest in, in the next program. Excellent. I, I know I'll be looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Visit the Ballard website at Ballard.com, where you'll find more information on the firm, their current and past projects, and an extensive list of resources. We will be visiting with Jim again soon, so he and Chris can discuss in detail some of the communities that have turned to the Ballard Herbst firm. Thanks again for listening to the Broadband Bits podcast. If there are issues related to telecommunications that pique your interest, we welcome your suggestions for future shows. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Community Nets. This show was released on July 30th, 2013. We want to thank the group Break the Bands for their song, Escape, licensed using Creative Commons. And thank you also for tuning in. Yeah.